together. Well, we have been um, continuing on in this story. And again, I'm not giving a lot of background here. Um, you can catch that online if you need to. But we are seeing a contrast between this small child named Samuel, who was a gift to his mother, who prayed to God after she was barren, and God provided her a son. But he's also, we're going to continue to see here, is a gift to all of Israel. And God is going to use him in a mighty way. And contrasting his faithfulness, even though we'll, we'll see, he doesn't have a, an official um, servant relationship. He doesn't, he's going to, in this, if we get to it today, in this passage, um, he's going to meet God on a much more personal basis. It'll be the start of him actually serving God in a, in a more... Uh, close, intimate way in that regard. But he is faithful and obedient, even as a child. Um, in the midst of this, contrasted with the priest Eli and his own sons, Hophni, Hophni and Phinehas, who are total reprobates, the very leaders of Israel um, doing things that uh, not only are against God's law, but kind of thumb their nose at what God has called and has and God's expectations of them. And we have kind of been looking at the micro, the details of this passage, but I want to pull out just for a minute and look at, at the macro view of all of this and just add these comments. One of the big themes throughout what we're going through right, right now is, a, is the theme of right worship and God's expectations for worship. And I hope you're catching that. One could even say that as we continue, that that theme does continue into the life of David. David, even though imperfect, certainly was a worship leader, in, as we would say in one sense. He wrote many of the Psalms. He was very involved in, in, in right worship. He brought the Ark of the Covenant, had it brought back to Jerusalem, the capital, all these things over against Saul who really didn't have much concern for God's commands when it came to worship or obedience to God at all. You could make that case that there's a broader theme of worship here. But certainly here, where we have the end, kind of really the end chapters of the book of Judges, where God's people um, cared nothing for God's laws and did whatever what was right in their own eyes, and that carried over into their worship. What they did in their private lives and how they, how they lived their lives in disobedience to God carried over into their worship. They were worshiping multi, um, a multitude of gods like the pagan people, peoples, and they weren't that concerned with how they worship God, as is made clear by Eli's own sons. These men had no problem introducing greed and um, immorality, sensuality into worship that God had clearly forbidden. And they had no problem with that. So Samuel is going to come in and God is going to use him to help redirect people. But we're really going to see the consequences of people and even a nation not worshiping God in the way that he has prescribed. And that can carry over an application into our lives today, into our church um, and how we function as a church and how we worship as a church. Uh, no, we're not concerned with one of the pastors taking extra sacrificial meat out of the pot as we're going to sacrifice it. Obviously, that's not 
um, what we're talking about here in application. But there are general principles of worship that God has carried over today that in our worship service, which is the Sunday morning service in particular, that we are very careful to keep a spirit of like Eli's sons of, of greed and of sensuality in, in music and in a lot of different things that the church today, honestly, has just overall has just kind of um, not had concern for at all. We can see in a lot of modern worship, a lot of greed and a lot of sensuality that shouldn't be there. And we strive as best we can at the little church here, Village Chapel Baptist Church, to worship God in the way that he has prescribed. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, were worshiping God in whatever way made them feel good. It was right in their own eyes. Folks, that should never be a part of our worship. Okay? Everything that we like about worship should always come secondary to God's principles about worship that it's pure, that it pleases him. And Eli and his sons are going to pay really a heavy price for this lack of, and, and the Bible is going to use a specific word here that has the idea of that they showed contempt for worship. And it means that they made light. They thought lightly of God's worship. God expects us to when we come to worship, to consider it significantly, that it should be weighty on us. And we're going to see described here that these two men and Eli allowed them to do this, um, perceive or, or performed in worship in a very light way that um, showed their lack of concern for God's standard. So that's kind of the big picture here. Let's jump back into this. We were in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and when we left off, Eli had finally admonished his sons, right? Now that he's elderly and old, he finally confronted them, but he didn't do, he didn't take action and actually remove them from the priesthood, which was his prerogative as a high priest. He could have done that. But nepotism was more important to him than right worship and being right before God. And so he wouldn't confront his sons in that way. He talked with them, but he would not act in dismissing them from God's service, and he should have. And so now there's going to be judgment proclaimed as we get to verse 27. Now, if you're thinking through the story, you might think, oh, this is where the little boy Samuel gets, hears God, and then God eventually gives him this message of judgment for Eli. But there's actually a passage here that I'm, I'm not sure why many times becomes obscure. We kind of pass over it. It's an unnamed prophet, a man of God, who's obscure. And for some reason, this whole passage has just been kind of uh, missing, certainly in uh, children's Sunday school lessons and things. But Eli is warned and given God's message of judgment before Samuel is ever actually involved in this. In verse 27, we have this. Um, described, there came a man of God unto Eli. We don't know this man of God's name. He's never told to us, showing us again that as God can use significant figures like a Samuel or a David, God can also just send somebody who we, whose name we never find out in this life. And this no-name prophet can still be used in a mighty way for God. So whether, I'm just a, a side note here, but whether people know your name or not, 
You could still serve God faithfully, and God knows that. Okay, just a side practicality there, application. And this unknown prophet or man of God said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear, or did I reveal myself unto the house of thy father? When they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house, he's referring there to Aaron, who was the first of the priests, and Eli is from the line of Aaron. When they were in Egypt, did I reveal myself? Did I, did I select Aaron to serve me in the priesthood in this way, all the way back as I delivered them from Egypt? Verse 28, and did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? This man is referring to God's dealings with Aaron and his selection of Aaron specifically and his descendants to be priests. And the whole point here is God gave Aaron and thus also Eli and his sons an incredibly great privilege to minister in the house of the Lord, to lead the worship, to be the spiritual leaders, in effect, of Israel. It was an amazing privilege and responsibility. And they were disregarding and scorning that privilege. They were not concerned about worship in the way that God had required. And it continues, and did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? I've given them the responsibility and you over the sacrifices that were the sacrifices ultimately a picture of our need um, for one that would come to take away sin. And that was an important picture that these men uh, were responsible for. And they were disregarding it and showing contempt for this. So it really was a big deal. Verse 29, wherefore kick ye or scorn ye at my sacrifice and mine offering. Here are my expectations for worship that I made clear in my law. And you scorn them. You treat them with contempt. Really, um, well, let's continue. Which I have commanded in my habitation in the tabernacle, or in this case, the structure, temple-like structure at Shiloh, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest or the choicest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. And that refers back to that those incidences where they were boiling the meat, the sacrifices that the people were coming and bringing, and the men were taking the best of the selections for their own use. And this does seem to indicate that Eli actually was implicated as well. That it says to make yourselves fat with the choice of this meat. And we do learn a little bit later on that Eli was, well, how do I say it? A little on the heavy side. It does seem that Eli, even though he was admonishing his sons, he was also eating of this meat that they were taking inappropriately. He was in on it, so to speak. And it seems to be... Um, part or implicated here. And Eli, and not decisively dealing with the sins of his son, what had he done? He had honored his sons above God. That's okay to love your family. It's okay to have a special affection as a father for your own children. That should be the case. If not, it's unnatural, right? But to honor your family, put your family above God is certainly never the right response. And that's what Eli has done here. 
And God will not stand for nepotism in worship. And so um, God is going to deal very um, heavily, so to speak, with Eli and his sons. And now we have the judgment here because Eli would not deal with his sons. Verse 30, wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. Here was the contract. Here was what the expectation that I had with Aaron and his descendants, that they would serve me and walk before me forever, that they would obey me. You, the spiritual leaders of Israel, we had an agreement, a very important. But Eli and his sons had breached that contract. And now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. An important principle for us and for Eli and his sons. His sons had allowed the greed and immorality into the nation's worship of Yahweh. And so judgment, they'd broken the contract. Judgment would have to come. And folks, again, I'm uh, broadening this out to worship principles for us today. Believe the application for us is when we worship God in the right way as Village Chapel Baptist Church, God has blessings for us. But if we just do it any old way we want to and we don't give any consideration for God, then basically what we're doing is we're lightly esteeming the importance of worship. And God will deal with that at some point. And you might say, but Pastor Bach, I know churches all over this country that seem to be lightly esteeming worship all the time, and they're huge. Success, uh, current success in numbers in a church worship service or in a congregation should never translate for us as acceptance by God. Does that make sense? We can, we, can, we can have much success, and we even have many people in God's word that were successful, and yet it was still described of them that they, they, were not, they did not have hearts that were fully after God. And God in his grace still gives some success, but at some point, God will deal with them, and God will work all this out. And for those that continue to obey him and worship him in a right way, I believe God has special blessings for them, and um, God has blessings for our church too. But Eli and his sons refused to do this, and so judgment would come. God would not bless those who did not honor him properly in worship. And so here we have a very heavy price to pay. Verse 31, behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm. Uh, It's kind of a vivid picture, but it has the idea, I will end thy strength. Your power will be no more. And the arm of thy father's house, and there shall not be an old man in thine house. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation, in all the wealth which God shall give Israel. And there shall not be an old man in thy house forever. And the man of thine or only one of you, here he's talking about only one of you from your descendants whom I shall not cut off after mine altar, shall be consumed, shall be to consume thine eyes, has the idea, shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve thine heart. 
and all the increase of thy house shall die in the flower of their age or by the sword of men. Now, there's a lot of details in that description. They're almost hard to understand. Um, God is going to bring this to fruition and fulfillment later on in our story, actually in the time of David, in a very specific and vivid way. I'm not going to give that away right now. Okay. But basically what he's saying here, he's giving two aspects to this judgment against Eli. The first one that he just that we just read here is described. Eli's descendants would suffer great loss. He's describing the fact here that the males would suffer untimely deaths so that Eli's descendants and his clan would be bereft of elders. Men would not live to an age where their wisdom could benefit the clan as a whole as God's judgment. Imagine in your family not having any older, wiser people that live to an age where you can benefit from that, that wisdom. Um, that would be significant indeed. That's what he's saying here. But also that Eli and his descendants, his line, the line, the Aaronic line of the priesthood would lose power and influence as a result. And that's kind of what all of that means to the point where then in verse 33, he says, only one of you, I'll leave one in your line who will not be cut off and it will be a great grief to him. Not much to look forward to for that guy. We're going to find out who he is later on. All of this will come true. But then he gets much more specific. Not only will your descendants suffer, Eli, and again, as I think about this, it may come across to us as if, wow, that's a heavy price to pay, to, 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 pay, to go through. But folks, we understand that's how, um, that's how serious God is about his worship. And not saying that if we don't do it right, that this type of thing is going to happen to us. But it does tell us that God takes worship seriously. and We, we shouldn't uh, make light of that. But even much more closer to home, he's going to lose his two sons. Verse 34, and this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy sons on Hophni and Phinehas. He names them specifically. And one day they shall die, both of them. So there's a judgment on his own sons and on his line, his descendants. Verse 35, and I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. Now, who would this priest be? Anybody have an idea? Who he's talking about? Samuel. Samuel, okay. Is Samuel a considered a priest? Well, true. Jesus is the only high priest, but Eli was considered. There were high priests. There was Eli. There was Aaron. Was Samuel fully considered to be the heir of Eli or to take over Eli's position in that way? It's not a trick question, but this is a little, this is a little bit of a harder question because you have to know the full scope of, and, and we're going to see this later on. In, go ahead. Samuel, um, 
no, no. He was from, uh, oh, it slipped me right. Ephraim, I think. Right. True. Well, let's look at it this way. I'll give you the answer. I think that Samuel fulfills this in a general way, but he's not really, he, he does, he, he's, Samuel is a very unique individual. And I think he's a picture of, of Jesus that's to come, a picture of the Messiah. He is the last judge, the last deliverer. He is certainly a prophet. And we're going to see that coming here. But he does perform some priestly duties. And remember what we said before, he will even perform some of the duties of the king, like King Saul, when King Saul is derelict in his duties, he'll, Samuel will, will perform them. So he is unique in this way. And I think in a general way, it maybe he's pictured here, but there seems to be a more specific fulfillment. And that comes later on in David's story by a man named Zadok, who would replace Abathar as high priest and would replace the Aaronic line of the priest. And we'll get into that later. But I think this is more referring to him. And since we're going to get that later on, I won't spend a lot of time on that now because I don't want to give away the whole story. But there is a priest in mind that will start a um, emphasis on a new line of the priesthood that will be separate from Aaron's line. And that will be this man Zadok. But this replacement will receive eternal benefits. Don't miss that. He shall walk before mine anointed forever. On the other side of that, in contrast, Eli's descendants, he describes here in verse 36, will become so obscure that they will beg to receive compensation for their services as priests. Look at verse 36. And it shall come to pass, or it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to or implore him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and shall say, put me, I pray thee into one of the priest's offices that I may eat a piece of bread. And we have an another vivid picture here of Eli's line of the priesthood. There would still be some left, but they would be um, insignificant. They would be so obscure that they would literally in their service, have to beg to be given compensation. All of this is Eli's line weakening and God punishing him in that way. A heavy burden to bear because he wouldn't worship God in the right way. And he made light and he, his sons made light of God. So here's the other side of this now. First Samuel 3 beginning at verse 1. Now we have a focus again on Samuel. And the child ministered unto the Lord before. Now it says that, first of all, that he ministered unto the Lord. There's a closer relationship there. But he's still under the watch care of Eli. Eli is still his main spiritual mentor, and probably we should consider him a father figure in Samuel's eyes as well. Very important. Um, that Eli was in Samuel's life. And that's going uh, to be an important emphasis as we continue here. But it says here something interesting. The word of the Lord was precious or rare in those days. There was no open, there was no frequent visions. Now, Samuel is probably at this point grown from a little boy, as we left him before, to a young man, maybe even around 12 years old or so. 
still an adolescent, still, but, but he is faithfully obeying God, ministering to the Lord. But then we get this characteristic, again, of this whole period of the judges period, so to speak, that because of the nation's disobedience, word and visions and communication from the Lord was very rare. As you continue on in the book of Judges, you find God more and more silent. It's almost as if he, he basically really were supposed to get the idea of, you've chosen your own way, you've rebelled against me, so I'm just going to be quiet, and you think you know what's best, I'm going to let you see how that works out for you. And he very rarely, toward the end of the book of Judges, um, gives them any communication from him at all, and that's what this is describing here. There was little... Um, communication. There was no frequent vision, it says here, from God himself. That's all going to change here. In verse 2, and it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax or grow dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went, had or had not yet gone out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. Um, here we have a picture of a little light, this lamp that's burning in the darkness. And I think there is, I think there is some spiritual aspects to this too. I think there's some pictures here that the author has made clear. Here we have this lamp that's, that um, the high priest was responsible to continue to um, burn throughout the night, you know, leave the light on for um, worship there and, and there should always be a light God prescribed um, in the temple. Eli's too old now to keep that light going. He's elderly. He's, his vision is not what it used to be. So Samuel is going to take over that, has taken over that for him. But here you have this little light in the midst of this darkness. And it does seem a picture here of Samuel in the midst of the darkness of this age. Okay couple other things here. It is interesting to me that Eli is described as his eyes beginning to grow dim. I don't want to take this too far, but it's pointing out Eli did not have the physical capability to perform all his regular duties. And I think this is a subtle reference to his spiritual state as well. His spiritual eyes are, growing, are dimming. And Samuel is now responsible to follow God's command to keep the lamp in the temple burning through the night. And who in this narrative at this point is closest to the presence of God? Samuel. He's closest to the Ark of the Lord. These are things that really happen, but there's also spiritual significance involved here. The emphasis is on Samuel as God's chosen servant. And now we're going to see that, verse 4. That the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. An obedient response, ready to obey every time. Isn't that sound wonderful, guys? Isn't that a great response for children? I love that response. 12-year-olds or even younger, you know, Samuel could have been younger here, but he immediately says, here am I. But he, isn't, he doesn't have a close enough relationship to the Lord yet to really know that this is the Lord speaking to him. He hasn't had that kind of interaction with God yet. So you hear a voice in the middle of the night. He would naturally think, well, it must be my spiritual leader, and the only other person that's here is Eli, so it must be Eli, right? And he ran into Eli and said, here I am I, 
for thou callest me. And Eli said, I called not, lie down again. And he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel rose again and went to Eli and said, here am I, for thou didst call me. And I imagine in my own thinking here that Eli's probably getting, you know, he's an older guy. He enjoys his sleep. Any of you that have ever been woken up once or twice in sleep, the first time you can forgive it, right? Okay. But if it's not a major deal and somebody's just waking you up for some for a reason that doesn't seem very important to you, by the time you do it a second time, most of us here are going to get slightly irritated. <laughs> and I think Eli is trying to the nicest that he can uh, make clear. And he answered, I called not my son, lie down again. He's probably thinking to himself, I've never had this trouble with Samuel before. What? What's, he, what's going on? He always lets me sleep. This is strange. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. Samuel, even though he was obedient, he did not have that close relationship with God that could call him a true servant yet. He didn't have that knowledge, that close relationship with God. But that's all going to change here very soon. So a third time, verse 8, the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for thou didst call me. Now, I think there may be some, that one could draw some contrast here. Eli's spiritual dullness with Samuel's alertness. I think there may be a picture of that here, but I can also be sympathetic with Eli. We get woken up in the middle of the night. All of us are groggy and we're not at our best. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt here that finally on this third one, he finally starts to realize something different is going on here than, than Samuel just um, being waking up and, and waking me up. Something specific is going on here. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. And therefore, Eli said unto Samuel, go lie down. And it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And so Samuel answers again in obedience, but Eli says, Now when that voice calls, it's the voice of the Lord. Be willing to submit to that voice, Samuel. You, it's a message from the Lord, submit to it. And Samuel will do that, verse 10. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, this time twice, and it says he stood. Now the Lord, this is picturing the actual presence of the Lord there with Samuel in a way that has not been with the people of Israel in a long time. Significant. He's standing there calling him. Then Samuel answered, speak, for thy servant heareth. And what he's about to hear is certainly going to surprise him and fill him with dread. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am or I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. And that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge or punish his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile has the idea here, his sons blasphemed God, and he restrained them not. That is that word there for making light 
of things that should be very significant and serious to us. They made light of worship to God. They blasphemed him. And because of that, and he restrained them not, and therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged or atoned with sacrifice nor offering forever. And the Lord is saying, Samuel, this is something that is going to happen. They can't avoid it. They can't dodge it. And you're going to be the one to tell Eli. How'd you like to have that message to give to your spiritual mentor, your father figure when you're only 12? Honestly, this may be one of the hardest things that Samuel ever had to do in his life. And it's his very first assignment as prophet to tell Eli that his sons are going to die and that his line is not going to continue. It's pretty remarkable um, what he's facing here. It will be terrible and spectacular. And um, let, let me ask you this too. This came to mind. Why send Samuel to do this when there had already been a man of God who had already told Eli this before? Eli, Eli's already heard this message. Why make a 12-year-old boy, or maybe even a younger boy, go to Eli and have to tell him this, this awful thing? you think of a purpose for that, Floyd? Perhaps, uh, since Eli had more or less not taken very serious action in that regard, we had to move beyond that. And we saw the younger man that was developing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Test of his faith, maybe. Mm. I think it was more. I think it was more of a test. It was a test for Samuel to see if he'd be willing to obey God. If he was, he's being called as God's prophet at this point, and also as Israel's deliverer. He'll deliverer. He'll figure that out later on but he's being called as God's servant. And so God is doing this, calling him, but also testing him to see if he's going to obey on his very first assignment. So this is more for Samuel than it is for Eli. Will he pass the test? Well, let's continue. Um, verse 15, and Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And I think, again, not to get too spiritual on this, uh, but I think this also points to the fact that Samuel will, in opening the doors, and by the way, if he's opening the doors, that means that this isn't a tabernacle or tent. It must be some sort of structure, just as a side note there. I think this also represents that here is a new day with a new chosen servant. He's going to let the light on in for Israel, but he still dreads what is inevitable. That new chosen servant still dreads what he has to do. And Samuel feared to tell or to show Eli the vision. So Eli is very interested, though, in what it was, right? Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here am I. Again, isn't that great? That's Samuel's first go-to phrase all the time. That's wonderful. Here am I. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee and more also, if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. So Eli alleviates the pressure by urging and really demanding, you tell me all, Samuel, or you're going to be cursed by God. Well, he's certainly going to tell him everything then. And he does. He doesn't withhold anything at all. He tells all. And Samuel told him everything 
and hid nothing from him. And Eli, give him this, he has the right response to what should always be a right response in the Old Testament to prophecy from God. And that is, let it be so. It is the Lord. Let him do with what seemeth good. He accepts the prophecy in the proper expected way. And now Samuel, even at a young age, is established as this faithful servant. And soon all of Israel in verses 19 through 21 are going to see this. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. That just means that his words were trustworthy and authoritative because they were from the Lord. And it's interesting, all the other judges in the book of Judges, the deliverers, do you notice that they were for the most part um, localized deliverers? There really wasn't a judge that um, delivered in one sense all of Israel. They were over simple, simple different areas. Samson um, battled the Philistines. Gideon was to the north battling the Midianites. But Samuel is the first judge who is affecting all of Israel. And that's why he's described in this way from all of Israel, from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. Samuel's leadership is recognized throughout Israel rather than the localized regions. And he is confirmed, attested of his authenticity as a prophet. And then we see that the presence of the Lord is again recognized in Israel through Samuel's ministry at Shiloh. It says, the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And Samuel is going to be God's gift to Israel, and he is going to point Israel in how to love, obey, and worship their God in a right way after having rebelled against him for so long. Samuel is going to be the one um, in a unique way, probably since the first time since Moses that a leader will so affect God's people in this way. God is going to use him in a mighty way. Next time we're together, we're going to see that God is going to make good on his promise, and Israel is going to be facing judgment, and they're going to lose much. But in the midst, there's the hope um, that God will still do what's right and is all-powerful.